Truth Espresso, episode 58. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, this is Daniel Minnick. Welcome to Truth Espresso, your host, for another exciting stimulus of truth for your brain. And as my wife and I have ended our series talking about abortion, I am going to move on to finishing up my series on economic topics, and then we'll go on to more exciting series from there. But come on, let's make economics a little bit more exciting, shall we? And in this episode, I want to talk about babysitting. Babysitting? What in the world does babysitting have to do with economics? Well, there is a particular well-known economist. In fact, his brain pretty much runs the economy of the United States and many other countries over the world, and this mind seems to be fond of babysitting when it comes to the economy, and he does like to babysit the economy. He thinks that the economy needs a babysitter, but in this episode, episode, I want to argue that the economy does not need a babysitter. And who is this economist, you might ask? Well, you might recognize the name Paul Krugman. And if you've ever seen him on TV, you would know that he is a rather distinguished fellow, introverted, with an awkward personality, but otherwise intellectual. Paul Krugman is a distinguished economics professor, and he's most known for his long tenure teaching at Princeton University from the years 2000 to 2015. And now he teaches at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Paul Krugman, in 2008, won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences, or we could just say the Nobel Prize for short, for his research theory work on international trade. And now, whether you believe that Paul Krugman's economic theories are worth their weight in gold or something that should be discarded in the trash can of history, he is definitely a character that you either love or you hate, at least economically speaking, because his ideas are very polarizing. Paul Krugman is the foremost proponent known in the world for promoting the Keynesian school of economics. Now, I haven't gotten yet into Keynesian economics, but some of the problems with the Keynesian school of economics are going to become manifest in this episode as we talk about babysitting. 
So now that I've introduced Paul Krugman, and you're probably bored out of your wits hearing me talk about economics and trade theory and the Nobel Prize and where Dr. Krugman has taught economics in various colleges, so let's get into something a little interesting. Now let's really talk babysitting. So Paul Krugman has this fetish for a particular example of a babysitting economy, a very simple economy that was run by a babysitting cooperative, particularly the Capitol Hill Babysitting Cooperative in Washington, D.C., And Paul Krugman likes this particular example, and he thinks that this scenario of people trying to help each other with babysitting services and not having to employ teenagers to do that dirty work, but to help each other out. Paul Krugman has a particular fetish for this particular example, and let me demonstrate just how much Paul Krugman likes the babysitting example When we look at his writings, and I would like to thank the Wikipedia article that I will link in the show notes for chronicling this, and we can see how obsessed Paul Krugman is about this babysitting co-op. The Capitol Hill Babysitting Cooperative, as an example of how an economy should be run, is first mentioned in Paul Krugman's 1994 book entitled Peddling Prosperity, Economic Sense and Nonsense in the Age of Diminished Expectations. And then next it is mentioned in a 1997 article entitled Even Babysitting Can't Avoid Recession. And then it is mentioned in a 1998 article for Slate entitled Babysitting the Economy, the Babysitting Co-op that Went Bust, teaches us something that could save the world. And then it occurs in his first 1999 book, The Accidental Theorist and Other Dispatches from the Dismal Science. And then in his second 1999 book entitled The Return of Depression Economics. And then Babysitting shows up in a 2001 article entitled The World's Smallest Macroeconomic Model. And then, in 2008, Slate reprinted Paul Krugman's 1998 article, Babysitting the Economy. And then, in 2008, Krugman revised and updated his 1999 book to be entitled, The Return of Depression Economics and the Crisis of 2008. And then, in 2009, Paul Krugman co-authored a textbook on economics with his wife, Robin Wells, entitled Macroeconomics. And, of course, on pages 18 and 19, there is a section called Adventures in Babysitting, where Krugman mentions the aforementioned co-op as a model for how to run an economy. And then also in a 2009 article for the New York Times entitled, How Did Economists Get It So Wrong? And then, toward the end of 2018, Paul Krugman could not leave well enough alone. 
He joined the ranks of the master class service that allows you to take paid recorded lessons. And in this master class, Paul Krugman once again brings up the babysitting co-op as an example to teach how to solve economic problems. And this is evident in the comments posted on Krugman's master class that some of those comments demonstrate that people saw through the problems with Krugman's analysis. So, do you get the sneaking suspicion that Paul Krugman is incredibly fond of this babysitting cooperative example? It's interesting, personally, that he has such a fondness for an economic model from a babysitting cooperative when he himself, despite two marriages, has never had a child, at least that we know about. So what about this Capitol Hill babysitting cooperative and let's find out about why world-renowned economist Paul Krugman just loves this babysitting cooperative. Well, the Capitol Hill babysitting cooperative began in the late 1950s. And over the years, it has waxed and waned in membership So, in the 1960s, there were about 20 families that were members of this babysitting cooperative, and the cooperative reached its highest peak of membership of over 200 families in the 1970s. So, how did this cooperative run, and how did it try to make babysitting something that was a commodity to the members thereof? How did it encourage people to help each other out with babysitting? babysitting and avoid the dreaded free market practice of having to pay some teenager, whatever, the the green stuff for that necessary service. Well, the cooperative printed coupons called Scrip. Each printed Scrip represented an obligation to provide a half hour of babysitting services. And so, what about any new member couple joining the co-op? Well, the new member couple joining the co-op, upon joining, would receive 20 hours of script, equal to 40 coupons, of course, at the rate of one coupon per half hour of babysitting service. Well, that sounds like a good deal. You just join and you get to spend 20 hours worth of coupons to get babysitting. How awesome is that? Well, it's not that simple because once a couple left the co-op, they would have to return 20 hours of script. So you could see that new member couples joining the cooperative would necessarily increase the supply of script in this little micro-economy. But a member couple leaving would also end up returning script to the administrators, and that could in some sense reduce the supply of circulating script medium, but it would depend on what the administrators would do. But speculation aside, how did one earn this valuable babysitting script or coupons? Well, to earn more script, a couple could babysit. Of course, 
The script then was good for redeeming for babysitting services. So there you go. You have a simple exchange. You babysit to get coupons, and then you can spend those coupons on other couples babysitting for you. So an hour of babysitting that you do could potentially mean an hour of babysitting that someone could do for you. So it sounded like a really good system. The administrators of the co-op would provide operating services to match couples needing services with those wanting to offer those services. So think of the administrators like the old-timey phone operators who would connect callers to their callees. <laughs> they would be able to facilitate the communications. It's kind of like the newspapers that would match those seeking jobs with a job directory and so the administrators were the middle people the go-betweens that would try to help the members of the cooperative help each other out without them all having to call each other up and ask hey would you be willing to babysit for me at this time of this day for this length of time the administrators could handle that and the members could post their requests whether to serve or be served on the list and the administrators would do all the contacting. So, of course, the administrators would be working in this way and they would be compensated for that. Now, this Capitol Hill Babysitting Cooperative still exists today, but it now runs under the moniker Capitol Hill Village as it has expanded its activities more toward elder care as many of the original members have gotten older and they no longer need babysitting services because their kids are all grown up. And now, let's chronicle some of the events of this cooperative and figure out why Dr. Paul Krugman, world-renowned economist, thinks that this babysitting cooperative system teaches us about how we should manage the economy of the United States of America. So, during the early times of this babysitting cooperative, demand for scrip was incredibly high. Of course, as we look at exactly what happened in the cooperative, we can kind of figure out why. So first, let's look at Paul Krugman's take by reading portions of his infamous 1998 article that I mentioned earlier. And so, we're going to read some statements from Paul Krugman's article from 1998 for Slate, entitled, Babysitting the Economy, the Babysitting Co-op That Went Bust, Teaches Us Something That Could Save the World. Ooh. I think we better listen to Paul Krugman here if he has discovered something that could save the world. So, to begin the article, Paul Krugman says, quote, 20 years ago, as of the writing of the article, I read a story that changed my life. I think about that story often. Well, you don't say, as we saw from Wikipedia's chronicling of Paul Krugman's mention of this babysitting co-op, we can certainly believe him and take him at his word that he does indeed think about that story often. 
Now, Krugman recognizes the intent of this babysitting cooperative to benefit the members mutually and to hold them accountable to act fairly toward each other. According to Krugman, quote, Babysitters would receive the appropriate number of coupons directly from the babysittees. This made the system self-enforcing. Over time, each couple would automatically do as much babysitting as it received in return, unquote. So Paul Krugman is talking about the intent of the co-op as they set up this system of coupons for trade and you babysit my kids, I babysit your kids. He recognizes the intention of this co-op. And then later in the article, Krugman accurately describes, give him credit, he accurately describes the unanticipated problem with this scheme. So, Krugman says, quote, Think about the coupon holdings of a typical couple. During periods when it had few occasions to go out, a couple would probably try to build up a reserve, then run that reserve down when the occasions arose, unquote. Yeah, that probably makes sense, the way people with their life habits would probably handle babysitting. You know, there are probably some times when they would like to do the babysitting and then special times when they would like to redeem their coupons so someone else can babysit them when it would be most beneficial to them and most enjoyable. So Paul Krugman recognized the role that the script or the coupons played as the demand to hoard the coupons then related later to the anticipated demand that these couples had to spend them later. You know, that would kind of make sense. So we give Krugman the credit for recognizing this. So according to Krugman... Quote, but since many couples would be holding reserves of coupons at any given time, the co-op needed to have a fairly large amount of script in circulation, unquote. Well, sure, I mean, if a coupon is worth a half hour of babysitting, we have to recognize that there has to be enough script to satisfy the needs of people to be able to save up script that they could redeem in large enough blocks, like several days or a weekend, something like that. So, sure, that makes sense. Paul Krugman is not off his rocker yet here. But let's think of the nature of people and couples related to the activity of babysitting. More couples wanted to earn the coupons now rather than spend them now. So, couples eventually wanted to babysit, but were having a hard time finding other couples willing to spend. This is the activity that was happening early on. Now, some couples were trying to build up their savings and other couples might have initially been willing to give up some of their coupons, but most of the focus was on saving up coupons. And now Paul Krugman talks about a problem that happened in this babysitting cooperative. Quote, Knowing this, couples became even more reluctant to use their reserves, except on special occasions, reducing babysitting opportunities still further. In short, the co-op had fallen into a recession. Unquote. And so, yes, 
using this babysitting cooperative as a microcosm of an economy, we would recognize this situation where a lot of couples have a lot of money and they're not willing to spend it on services, a recession. The activity has slowed down. And so there's a problem because at this point, as various couples have built up their savings, they want to start spending. But there was a problem with couples being willing to babysit because they didn't need to earn more coupons. They wanted to spend them. And so you had this kind of race condition where now couples had earned what they wanted and now they wanted to spend it. But everyone else had earned what they wanted and they wanted to spend. So who's going to satisfy the demand for spending on services? Now, before we see Paul Krugman really start to go downhill in his article, I'd like to take a little break and promote a fellow podcast from the Christian podcast community. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P, Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. Well, thank you, Andrew, for that enticing commercial. And I would like to point out for Truth Espresso listeners that I was actually on the rap report to talk about economics. And I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. I have also been on Andrew Rappaport's Theology Throwdown and Apologetics Live. And so I really appreciate what Andrew Rappaport has done for me and other members of the Christian podcast community in helping to promote our podcasts and give an audience to them. It is really a blessing from God. And now let's continue analyzing Paul Krugman's article. So at this point in Paul Krugman's article, we start to see Krugman sort of go off the rails in his analysis just a little bit. According to Krugman, quote, Since most of the co-op's members were lawyers, it was difficult to convince them the problem was monetary, unquote. Yeah, too bad all these babysitting couples weren't economists, particularly Keynesian economists. Otherwise, they would realize that their supply and demand problem needed economists at the top to help them trade properly. Too bad Krugman himself doesn't realize that the way the system itself was rigged was bad economics. Now, he chides that the lawyers among these babysitting couples tried to lawyer away the problem. According to Krugman, quote, they tried to legislate recovery, passing a rule requiring each couple to go out at least twice a month, unquote. Well, yeah, I think we can all agree that this would be involuntary servitude or slavery. Well, no. 
I wouldn't quite go that far, but that doesn't sound like a reasonable solution, especially given seasonal times when it might be difficult for members in the cooperative to fulfill that kind of obligation to <laughs> go out at least twice a month. You know, it's it's kind of funny to impose a rule that a couple has to need people to babysit their kids at least twice a month. <laughs> but so forcing people to spend a certain amount of money every month is bad law and, of course, I would say bad economics. But Krugman champions the solution that followed. He thinks that the solution worked. And this solution is what the administrators of the cooperative actually tried to do to resolve the problem of a stagnant babysitting microeconomy. Quote, but eventually the economists prevailed. More coupons were issued. Couples became more willing to go out. Opportunities to babysit multiplied and everyone was happy. Unquote. So instead of having a rule that required people to buy babysitting services from each other, Krugman's ideal solution that was actually implemented by his fellow travelers in Keynesian economists at the babysitting cooperative was to print more money. So yay, the problem was solved by stimulating people to do more babysitting and spend more on babysitting against their better judgment and against the purchasing power of their coupons. The solution of the economists, according to Krugman, was to inflate the supply of coupons. This, of course, made more coupons available to be earned, but what would eventually happen? Well, the purchasing power of the coupons, adding more coupons to be earned into this economy, would economically be lower, of course. But what would that mean to those who had just committed to doing more babysitting at the coupon rate? Well, they would have a greater problem on their hands later on, wouldn't they? How would they spend more coupons later if they had a hard time earning them earlier on? And so, how would just printing more coupons lead to a lasting solution to the problem? Sure, printing more coupons got people to start doing more babysitting and spending more on babysitting, but that's what they did at the beginning of the co-op before. And so now that people were stimulated to do what they did originally, they started hoarding coupons again, and then eventually everyone's going to have more coupons that they can't spend or that they're unwilling to spend without proper stimulus. And so Krugman does briefly mention in passing what happened as this policy continued. So according to Krugman, quote, eventually, of course, the co-op issued too much scrip, leading to different problems, unquote. And this is all the love that Paul Krugman gives to this situation. That was it. He didn't draw any conclusions from this. 
His point in this article is to sing the praises of solving recessions by printing more money. Thank you, Krugman, for being honest about mentioning the hyperinflation that ensued. But, you know, he doesn't want us to think about that. He thinks that the actions that led to hyperinflation are to be lauded. Now, wait a minute. Since, according to Krugman, quote, the economists prevailed, unquote, the first time they prevailed by creating more coupons to earn, that also means that the economists prevailed by doing this again and again until there was the problem of hyperinflation. Now, were these economists good economists or bad economists as we look back at this situation? Did they get it right the first time and then get it wrong later by doing the same thing for the same reasons? So, when are these noble economists in the co-op supposed to understand when to turn off the spigot? When hyperinflation happens and it's already too late? I mean, how are they supposed to know when to stop this? Especially if the symptoms of the problem they are trying to solve are always the same, i.e. a collapse in demand for offering babysitting services to get more coupons in an effort to redeem the coupons in the future for babysitting services. So, Paul Krugman, world-renowned economist, gets it wrong, miserably wrong. The Nobel Prize-winning economist who won that prize for international trade didn't seem to understand the lessons that we really should be learning from this cooperative based on trade. The problem is that an economy needs to satisfy both the buyer and the seller. Otherwise, a transaction will be harder to make happen. So, let's look at what the Word of God says. I know Paul Krugman, being a left liberal, according to his own admission, would probably not regard the Bible highly. I think Paul Krugman is definitely an atheist, and so he doesn't consider the Bible an authority, but the Bible does have ought to say about economic issues that could help us understand what the real solution was to this babysitting fiasco. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 14. And God says, And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not oppress one another. Well, Daniel, what does that have to do with babysitting? Let me say that in this situation, it has everything to do with babysitting. (laughs) Well, at least babysitting as it relates to an economy in general and what really works to make an economy flourish. This means that the buyer and the seller have to be free to agree on the service offered and the price to pay. A managed economy that fixes prices may interfere with transactions. And so, thus, you have buyers wanting to buy and sellers wanting to sell, but they are forced not to be able to meet in the middle. They can't transact, and the market is not allowed to clear. 
because this verse says that the buyer and the seller should not oppress one another. Well, if they mutually agree on a price or an amount of a good or service, then you have a transaction. But in the babysitting co-op, the buyer and the seller were not allowed to agree to that, as I will explain a little bit later. In a free market, supply and demand can, of course, fluctuate. That's why you have those little graphs with those little curves and those little lines and those little intersection points where supply and demand meet that equilibrium point. And so if you've ever looked at supply and demand graphs, they're, they're pretty simple, but it's not a straight line. They change, they fluctuate. And so to clear the market and allow transactions, seasonal changes in supply and demand happen. Now let's look at another example from the Bible in which prices change. And this is something that even God sanctioned. Since God would make the weather better, goods would become cheaper to buy. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And so Elisha, through God's word, relayed some economic information about what tomorrow would be like, and that at the gate, the market in Samaria, they would be able to buy a lot of flour and a lot of barley for cheap because those goods would be plentiful. And the king's courtman was rather skeptical of this divine information. But let's think about it. Wow. I mean, if we were talking about the stock market, wouldn't you like to be a stock trader with that kind of advanced information? It's like, tomorrow God will make this stock go up by 20%. Wow. Uh, sure, I'll buy today, right? But what is the point I am making? The price of these goods change as the season changes. The season affects supply and demand. The market clearing prices change relative to supply and demand. So, if anyone in Samaria tried to transact tomorrow using today's prices, they would have a problem. Those who had the money would probably hold on to it and wait. Get the picture? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our beloved babysitting cooperative in which the transactions were not occurring because the price was not right? Let's look more at the scriptures to understand the seasonal nature of economics. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and learn a lesson from the ants. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, you know, Krugman's economists, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. 
So what do we learn from these verses and from the example of the ants? Economically, it's wiser to labor and work at a time when sowing and reaping make the most sense. In other words, we should work when the fruits of our labor are cheaper. Then, during the winter season when food is less available to earn, food certainly would become more expensive. This illustrates the seasonal nature of supply and demand and how they fluctuate. So, now, let's compare the seasonal nature of the ant's labor with Paul Krugman's favorite babysitting cooperative. Now, Krugman admits twice in this article that those who were focused on saving their coupons, quote, became even more reluctant to use their reserves except on special occasions, unquote. What might those special occasions be when it comes to babysitting? A holiday party time like New Year's Eve, for instance. So, when many of the couples themselves might want to go out in the town and have fun partying on New Year's Eve, they may have earned and saved up their coupons just for such an occasion. Well, what other couple is going to want to work on a holiday evening and babysit another couple's kids for the going rate of one coupon per half hour of babysitting? Because it's a holiday, a couple might be willing to stoop to babysit if the price was right you know, supply and demand. Perhaps a couple might be willing to do the babysitting work on New Year's Eve for, say, double or maybe triple the coupons. Losing the fun of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day might be worth it if a couple could earn, say, a week's worth of babysitting services to take a vacation in an off-season time. Now, let's forget the holidays, even. Let's just look at our seven-day week itself. What days of the week could likely command more babysitting services than others? Friday and Saturday would probably be worth more than a weeknight in the middle of the week, like Tuesday through Thursday, perhaps. Who would want to give up weekend opportunities for the same price as a Wednesday night during the work week? Now, this is the rub. One hour does not necessarily equal another hour. Now, let's consider how the economy at large works. Let's take some other familiar examples. Hotel prices fluctuate with the seasons and holidays. Have you ever tried to book a flight for a trip around Thanksgiving Day or Christmas? I mean, the only way you can get a flight is if you're willing to pay more for that same flight service. That's how the market clears when supply and demand fluctuate. They seem to be allowed to intersect freely. Seasons affect prices, and the co-op's price-fixing scheme of one coupon for one half hour of babysitting service at all days of the week and holidays didn't take into account supply and demand and human action for work and leisure. So, let prices go up or down freely without regulating them, and the market will clear. Problem solved. Simple, huh? And biblical. 
But Krugman didn't consider that obvious solution to the problem. No, his solution was to issue more scrip or coupons. His solution was to cause inflation. His solution was to rob the purchasing power from those who worked first to earn it. And all that ultimately did was temporarily stimulated some people to work again under false pretenses, only to be disappointed later. So, just letting people freely charge the prices that they want could actually have saved the economy of the babysitting cooperative? That might just be simple enough to be true. But when it comes to world-renowned Nobel Prize-winning economists of the Keynesian variety, solutions like that are certainly not obvious. Why? Because they're simple and they happen freely. And economists like Paul Krugman think that people just can't trade properly without needing a nanny at the top, without needing someone with a bullhorn, or without needing someone to push the buttons and pull the levers and fiddle with the supply of money. He thinks the economy needs to be babysat. I mean, that's the title of the article, Babysitting the Economy. And he thinks that this babysitting co-op proves that the economy needs a centralized babysitter that would control the supply of script or money to facilitate economic activity. Because for some reason without that, people won't be able to figure out how to trade with each other. But instead of forcing the price of the money lower by introducing more money, the correct solution was to let people set the price of babysitting according to the ups and downs of seasonal activity. How about that? Freedom actually works. People can figure it out. And that's what the Bible promotes. And so let's end with Krugman's end to his babysitting article. According to Krugman, quote, And if you are willing to really wrap your mind around the co-op story to play with it and draw out its implications, it will change the way you think about the world, unquote. Yo, Krugman, I looked at the co-op story and I saw the real problem. But the only thing you see is how to be a part of the problem. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 